Hi, I'm Larry Gifford. I have Parkinson's disease. The patient-doctor relationship is really important. But what do you do if you don't like or get along with or even trust your neurologist? This is when life gives you Parkinson's. And today we're talking about when and why and how exactly do you fire a doctor? Joining me on the podcast journey is my wife and partner in Parkinson's, Rebecca Gifford, and reporter and contributor, Nikki Reitmeyer. Hold on a second here, Larry. Wait, we were just talking in the last episode about how great your neurologist is. You didn't fire Dr. Squires, did you? Gosh, I hope not. No, 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 no. Dr. Squires is great, but I was this close from switching GPs. Mine seemed super uninterested in my Parkinson's disease. Really? She's since come around. Uh, but that was really frustrating. Oh, did you lose your trimmer? No, I didn't lose my trimmer. <laughs> Good Lord. Uh, but over the course of this podcast, we have heard from folks that the first neurologist they get assigned to, or therapist, or pharmacist, or general practitioner, isn't necessarily the right fit. Uh, take a listen to this. You'll recognize many of these voices from past episodes. The guy I saw, I won't say his name, but he had a bit of a God, God complex, you know. Mm-hmm. And he asked me if I had a big mortgage, how many kids I had, what I did for a living, and then told me I had Parkinson's, handed me a, a tub of labor doper, and told me to get on with it. Ridiculous. Ugh. Yeah. That's terrible. 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 Uh, and if that wasn't enough, he said I'd probably have to quit my job in two or three years. Ugh. So it, it was frightening, really frightening. So did, so, you, did, so did you fire him? I fired him, yeah, I never saw him again. And I kept saying to my orthopedic surgeon, my foot's bothering me. My foot's bothering me. And he said to me, I think you're drinking too much Splenda. <laughs> so for three years, I did nothing. I didn't think to do anything. And then I decided that it was, I went to my GP for my regular checkup and I told him and he's like, ah, you're crazy. He always tells me you're crazy. And he said, but let's go, let's make you an appointment downstairs at the neurologist. And I did. Young doctor, wonderful doctor. She diagnosed it in about 30 seconds. His PA would see me most of the time and he wasn't seeing me. Uh, He had me on a... Uh, a, an agonist called Primapexel, which was a disaster uh, in many ways, most particularly weight gain. Uh, I gained 50 pounds Whoa. In over, over six months. The guy, the guy that diagnosed me, my wife was with me, and she just looked at me and said, we won't be going back to see him, will we? And it was like, no, we won't. When I switched to the new neurologist, half of the pills that I was taking that were prescribed from the old neurologist, I stopped taking because I didn't even need them. Unfortunately, my movement disorder specialist retired, and uh, so I got into a new one, and the new one didn't look at my history. It came in, I think he just read the first paragraph of my history. When I walked in, so I walked in. He goes, "Who diagnosed you with Parkinson's, anyway?" I started crying, (laughs) and uh, uh, it was like I was a bad girl, right? He said there was nothing wrong with me and sent me away. And then I went back a month later because my arm was really badly shaking sometimes, and I said, "There is something wrong with me. You have to help me." Um, and he said, oh, he, picked, he actually picked up my shoes and looked at where they were worn and went, oh, yeah, you are you are wearing it down on one side. 
I'll send you to neurology, but it's all in your mind. He, went, he said, I don't think there's anything wrong with you at all. jeez. Oh, <laughs> it was really, really overwhelming. And, you know, the neurologist came in, and I had done the series of tests. I had done the smell test and the walk up of the hall and the rigidity test, which was fine. But he just comes back in the um, room and says, yep, you have Parkinson's. Do you have any questions? And he says, in the medical report, based upon her appearance, I'm going to suggest this person is a drug addict, basically. And he was so far off the mark that within a few months when I saw another doctor, the second that I walked into that doctor's office, pretty much was like, oh, you have Parkinson's disease. Well, it certainly is frustrating when to hear so many stories like that, to know that mm-hmm. that's a not an uncommon thing to occur. <laughs> oh, my goodness. And the courage that it really takes to be able to fire your doctor or to fire your neurologist. I can't even bring myself to fire a hairdresser. <laughs> so <laughs> never mind a doctor. <laughs> yeah. And, and this happens uh, to, to care partners. It does seem a bit inconsistent in people's experience with how involved the care partner is in reporting and discussing with a specialist of any kind. Um, and neurologists and people with Parkinson's and their care partners, I have heard stories like this a lot, where they aren't even really addressed in the room, aren't asked questions. When the person with Parkinson's says something and then the care partner starts to speak up and say, well, here's an additional thing that I'm starting to observe, or maybe they're wanting to observe something sort of contrary to that, that might be a perception that's been muddled by the person with Parkinson's because of the disease. They are talked over or dismissed, not even the, the notes, not even taken down of what they say. Well, and that's a great point. Later in the pod, I'm going to be talking with Dr. Rachel Dolan, board certified movement disorder specialist. Other people might recognize her as the vice president of medical communications for the Michael J. Fox foundation. I'm going to ask her about the medical community's views on care partner input. Now, can you also ask her another question for me? Ask her about how patients break trust with doctors. How patients break uh-huh. trust with doctors. Oh, turn it around. Yes. I like that. Yeah. Yeah, that's great. That's <laughs> okay. Great. We, we, we duly noted. Uh, last year, when I was in Atlanta for the Michael J. Fox Foundation's Parkinson's IQ Plus U, I had the opportunity to talk with Dr. Stuart Factor. Uh, about the doctor-patient relationship. And Dr. Factor is currently professor of neurology, director of the Movement Disorders Program, and the Vance Lanier Chair of Neurology at the Emory University School of Medicine. There's been some talk here about finding the right neurologist for you or the right MDS. Mm-hmm. Is, is there such a thing as a, a bad fit and a good fit? Yeah, I, I think some people feel uncomfortable with some doctors or they don't sort of see eye to eye on things. And uh, so I think that's a very reasonable thing to do. So. In the uncomfortable situation, like let's say you were my neurologist and I wanted to break up with you, how do I do that? Um, you can just tell me. You're not going to hurt my feelings. <laughs> I mean, we we do um, tell patients that if they want another opinion, then that's fine. And I'll actually even help you find somebody else if you want to do that. So, I mean, he's just like, yeah, well, just tell them you want to change doctors. Like, it's no big deal. Like, if... It, you know, which is great, but I don't think everybody's going to react that way. 
Right. No, but it's it's nice to hear that, you know, in some cases it doesn't need to be scary, that they will support you. Yeah, I have heard from other PD friends that when they even suggest getting a second opinion or an evaluation from a movement disorder specialist, their general neurologist essentially fires them on the spot. Isn't that what happened to Jeanette and Barry? Remember them from the misdiagnosis episode? Good memory. Yep. Two years before ah. uh, we met Jeanette and Barry, she had been diagnosed MSA, multiple system atrophy. We were among the chorus of vo- voices who were encouraging her to get a referral uh, to the movement disorder clinic just to, to, to get access to, to, to more services, but also to get a second opinion. And um, let's just listen back in on uh, what happened there. At the, one of the first questions we asked at my neurologist appointment was, so what do you think about the movement disorder clinic and or getting us a referral? Because our, our family physician said that if you want a referral to the movement disorder clinic, your neurologist is the right person to ask about that because she can get you in faster than I can. And so Barry and I said, okay, well, let's ask about that. So we get to our neurologist appointment and we asked about that. Well... That was it Her for that. Her first words were, you know, if you do that, then uh, then that ends our relationship. Wow, I am so surprised that a doctor would react like that. It's not the only story I've heard like that. I mean, it's, yeah, oh, yeah. Really? Crazy. crazy. Um, but, I, you know, I wanted to catch up with Jeanette because, you know, it's been a year now since, uh, you know, she realized, oh, I don't have MSA. I, I just have Parkinson's which is, you know, unbelievable. You know, for two years, she thought she was dying. So a year later, September 2020, I met Jeanette for a socially distanced toast and catch up in downtown Vancouver. It's changed everything. Everything about my life has changed because I'm living for a living rather than, I mean, I just live, I feel like a, a quote unquote normal person in the way that I don't, ultimately know how and when I'm going to die. Whereas last year, I really felt like I knew how and when I was going to die. And uh, thank you. Oh, our wine has arrived. (laughs) (laughs) So when you're talking about death and dying, it's important to drink wine. (laughs) It's always important to drink wine. (laughs) Cheers. How are you feeling about your first neurologist these days? Well, I had to go, I, I get uh, Botox injections to help me with my headaches and for the dystonia that I get in my neck and shoulders. I get, uh, I, I, I suffer from a lot of dystonia in my feet and, and my, my neck and my shoulders. And so I get Botox injections in those, in the neck and shoulders. And I'll tell you, it's like I was a huge different person. But because of COVID and everything else, I do not get that through my new neurologist because they don't, she doesn't do it apparently. And so I was going to my old neurologist to get those injections still. Awkward. Awkward is right. (laughs) But having said that, she never ever said anything to me about Nothing. Nothing. And she, she knows. She knows because the the new neurologist and the old neurologist uh, communicate together. And she said, well, at one point she did say, well, this is a better diagnosis than the previous one. And I said, yes. 
but no, no, I'm really happy for you, Jeanette. No, I'm really, whoa, am I ever glad I was, I made that mistake or, or nothing, not even joking or not yeah. joking or, or happy or sad or so to be honest i felt kind of weird about that it was awkward the whole thing was just weird i would go in there and then and and she would just be like it was just any other person with parkinson's like it was just it was just weird leading up to knowing that she had given you the wrong diagnosis what was your relationship like with her um well i trusted her so so i thought it was okay i thought she was really doing a lot for me and as when I switched the new neurologist, half of the pills that I was taking that were prescribed from the old neurologist, I stopped taking because I didn't even need them. I remember soon after you got the second diagnosis, you were still very defensive of the first neurologist. I was because I was just supposed to trust her. But I never, I never, after she didn't say anything to me or not, not anything warm or cozy, I, I honestly just felt a little empty about it the whole thing I just felt a little empty and I felt completely I, I can't say I was angry because it was it was kind of it was too ridiculous to even be angry that, that she didn't even say anything to me it was I was um, I was very I was off put I guess and so I called my new neurologist office and said you know can I go somewhere else to get the Botox because I really just don't feel comfortable going there. And, and I said to the new neurologist, I said, quite frankly, I don't think she likes me very much. I, I said those words because I just, I felt like that's what I felt like. Yeah. I thought, you know, only somebody would, would treat somebody that they don't like very much this way. I mean, quite frankly, Larry, you and I go through shit that we don't want to do every single day of our life. Yeah. Every single day when we open our eyes, we have to do something that we don't like to do. And, or we feel a way that we don't like to feel. And to have com compounded pressure from other sources, I just don't need that. I just, I just don't need that. And so my care went to my friend, who is an ophthalmologist who takes very good care of me. And she said the same thing. You don't have to offer anybody any explanations. You just go in there and say, I've taken my care somewhere else. You give them my business card. And then you say, thank you very much. And you leave. So I did that. I went and got my Botox the other day. I had my injections, I presented the business card, I said thank you very much for your care and I'm just for ease, I'm taking my care to somebody else and she said can I ask you who and I told her and that was it, wow. sayonara, I love How'd that make you feel? Well I felt, I felt kind of liberated actually, yeah I felt, I felt like I'd actually done something that I planned to do, I didn't feel wishy-washy about it, I didn't even feel emotional about it, I just felt really like, like I'd accomplished something, to be honest. And I can't imagine getting the feeling that your doctor doesn't like you. I mean, that does not inspire a person to want to go and seek care. I just love that she admitted that to the <laughs> new doctor. Like, I don't even think she likes me. Can oh. I go someplace else? <laughs> <laughs> But it must feel, like she said, you know, so liberating. You just peel the Band-Aid right off and you know that you've made the right decision. Uh, it, there, there, are, there are more examples. So we're just hang tight because we're going to go through a couple here. We met Dave Clark from the UK last year. He was the first voice on the montage you heard earlier in this episode. His dad had Parkinson's while he was growing up. And it, it, Dave's bad experience with the doctor came in 2011 
when he was diagnosed? I was diagnosed 10.47 on Tuesday, the 25th of January. <laughs> I'll never forget it because I went, I've noticed a pain in my shoulder, usual, usual thing that you get. My writing was getting smaller. My grip was, my hand was slow. And I went, went to physio saying, I think I've injured myself playing, playing soccer. And he said, I think it's neurological. Have you thought about Parkinson's? I thought, I've thought about Parkinson's a lot over the years, you know, but, but I didn't realise there's any hereditary nature to it. And it, they reckon about 10% of Parkinson's, there's, there's some genetic connection. So I went to the, the I, I couldn't wait. The, the NHS waiting list was four months as a specialist. So I paid for a private consultation. And, and the guy I saw, I won't say his name, but he had a bit of a God, God complex, you know. Mm-hmm. And he asked me if I had a big mortgage, how many kids I had, what I did for a living, and then told me I had Parkinson's, handed me a, a tub of Labour Dopa and told me to get on with it. Ridiculous. Ugh. Yeah. That's terrible. Terrible. And if that wasn't enough, he said I'd probably have to quit my job in two or three years. Ugh. So it was frightening, really frightening. So did, so, you, did, so did you fire him? I fired him. Yeah, I never saw him again. Yeesh, just no sympathy at all. No, no, the, the God complex comes up quite a bit. God complex. Okay, can you tell me more about this? What is the God complex? The attitude that some doctors have that what they say goes and they they are speaking gospel, whether it's your truth or not. It's their truth and you need to follow it. And if you're not going to follow it, then you're not part of my flock. And that they know something that the rest of us couldn't possibly no, mm, they're the experts, and that they know more about our bodies than than we could know, oh. because they understand the science of it and they studied and they're right. It's a it's a lot of ego that I believe is still is starting to work itself out from the industry, but still there, obviously. Now, as a side note, since we talked to Dave so long ago, how, how is he doing now? Oh, you know what? Dave has now retired from Sky Sports. Oh. Uh, that was in July, after 20 years of calling darts and boxing and more. Wow. This summer, he was supposed to hike and climb to Everest Base Camp for a fundraiser. Wow. But, uh, you know, COVID-19 kind of put a wrinkle in that. Uh, but for his March for a Cure, uh, he decided to walk along Hadrian's Wall. I just want to say I've completed the Hadrian's Wall Challenge. Right crossing the nearly 90 miles in all. We've raised over £30,000 for vital research for Parkinson's. Thanks for all your donations. really means a lot, particularly the fivers and £2 and tenors that have come in from darts fans and sports fans across the country. If you stopped me along the way and had a chat, thank you to, thank you to the people that walked with me. I'm getting quite emotional now because it's, it's been a heck of a challenge for me. But cheers for everybody's support and I look forward to seeing you soon. Bye. So far in his fundraising efforts over the course of many years, Dave has now raised 500,000 pounds (laughs) for pioneering research projects supported by Parkinson's UK. Amazing. That is impressive. Yeah, really cool. Former Tampa Tribune president and publisher Gil Thielen has Parkinson's and had a similar experience as Dave in his diagnosis. She watched the arm swing and the little muscle... uh, test and looked at me and said, uh, yeah, you got Parkinson's, fella. The good thing is that uh, something else will kill you first, 
The uh, bad thing is that it's incurable. So Gills fired his fair share of doctors who he felt were not hearing him or treating him to his satisfaction. His second neurologist relationship got off on the wrong foot and then got worse from there. Uh, we've done a lot together in terms of things in the community and, and he, I was his patient and, and uh, he, he asked me to come into the office one afternoon to uh, talk over any uh, differences in approach that he and I may, might have about uh, caring for Parkinson's patients. I said, what, what should I call you? You know, we've been, been together for a number of months. You can certainly call me Gil. He said, uh, Dr. So-and-so, <laughs> Dr. So-and-so. And so I, I knew at that point, <laughs> this, was, this, this was not a relationship that would uh, go a long way. Wow. So, so then what are some of the other things that uh, sort of cued you that this was not a long-term relationship? His PA would see me most of the time, and he wasn't seeing me. Uh, he had me on an agonist called Primapexel, which was a disaster uh, in many ways, most particularly weight gain. Uh, I gained 50 pounds. Whoa. And over over six months. Same thing happened to a party friend of mine uh, in Tampa, same doctor, same drug, and he gained 50 pounds. And so I said, Oop, I don't think this is going in the right direction. And I, uh, I opted for a second uh, MDS in, the, in, in that practice who, uh, who I then um, switched to. And he was Certainly very, very open, very hospitable, very knowledgeable, very energetic. Uh, however, when I had the first of what I call my uh, Parkinson's disasters, right? I was traveling with my wife from North Carolina back to Florida, and uh, my, uh, my urinary system just let go. <laughs> Basically, I was, I was pissing in my pants, if you will. Oh. Uh, in fact, that happened. And uh, I could hardly make it from rest stop to rest stop. So we get back to Tampa and I uh, ring him up and say, hey, we got to talk here. He said, well, I think that's just Parkinson's progressing. Said, this was basically two years after diagnosis. And I said, just a minute, so what are you going to do here? Well, he said, I'll probably put you in these uh, support hose that uh, help you with, uh, uh, with edema. And that's about it. And I said, you do nothing else? And he said, that's right. I said, okay, well, I think I want to go someplace where they're going to deal with this multiplicity of symptoms. Virtually anything that's involved with the autonomic nervous system will, Dr. Uh, old Dr. Parkinson will fire an arrow at me. With, uh, <laughs> old uh, Dr. Uh, Parkinson. Uh, with, <laughs> old Dr. Parkinson. And so... Uh, you know, we, we looked at him and said, hey, I, I think we can do better. So basically, I went back to my interns, told same same university, not, not, not the same department. And she said, yes, we're going to pick off these symptoms one at a time. So Gil and his wife, uh, C. Struby Thielen, wrote the book Counterpunch, Duking It Out with Parkinson's, which is a guide for folks to take control of their own wellness. I, I believe that Excellent Parkinson's treatment is a really a three-legged stool. The first leg of that stool is the informed and empowered patient. 
the person who's going to get off of the couch and say, I'm going to have at this thing. I, I'm not going to let it get me. And I'm going to, I'm going to gather the information I need to know about this condition. And so that empowered and informed patient then gets with their MDS neurologist in, 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 in the best case. And they, you get a health plan. You draft a health plan in terms of what you can do, in terms of exercise, in terms of camaraderie, Diet. all the elements, it's physical therapy, which mine, mine's included. It can include speech therapy. But anyway, so you get a plan. And then the third leg of the school is what I refer to as a Parkinson's center, which can be bricks and mortar or virtual, where the informed, empowered patient who's got a healthcare plan can go and say, okay, these are the elements of my plan. This is this, help me get to people to do this with me. Oh, I really, really like that analogy. A three-legged stool informs and empowered patients drafting a health plan with a neurologist or with your MDS and finding a community of experts and people to execute the plan and support you as well. I mean, that is perfect. Friend of the pod, Becca Miller, who we heard in the montage, was upset when her neurologist suggested DBS as a possible treatment. I really freaked out. I had just heard from a good friend that her DBS had caused her to not be able to speak anymore, which sort of ended her working career. So so I was sensitized to that. And then I also thought that it was like at least five more years down the road for me. And so she mentioned this and I was like, no, I haven't. I've heard of DBS, but I haven't really thought about it. She's like, oh, you could go to this support group. You know, there are people there who've had it and who are thinking about it. And I was like, I started crying and I said, please stop talking. <laughs> <laughs> I really had a very strong reaction that was just basically like, I'm not thinking about this. I, I can't, you know. And for her, it was sort of like this, you know, it was like one of many, you know, of array of treatment options. For me, it's like, oh, my gosh, this is the last stop and like you're offering it to me now. And this means that, you know, this indicates like somehow the progression of Parkinson's for me. And, and so it had much, much more symbolic meaning than just like, and then it's also brain surgery, you know, just that other minor point. So she got a new neurologist. She's contemplating DBS, but trying to hold off till the start of that process until a little longer. Meanwhile, like continue to increase my meds and also switch to movement disorder specialist. Let's pause there for a second. Let's talk yeah. about firing your neurologist. At what point was it immediately? <laughs> okay. you, immediately, you said, "I'm firing my neurologist." No, I mean, I was. I thought about it, and then I, I actually actively looked for, um, you know, referrals to other folks, and and found that there was another person in the group um, that I was seeing that was came highly recommended and was, I switched. Was her only mistake yeah. actually bringing up DBS or were there other things where you're like, I don't really trust you? Mm, I think that, so it was a, it was a um, maybe somewhat unique circumstance where my original neurologist had had her as a fellow. She'd moved on to become an attending I had actually been switched without being asked, which did not make me happy either. So basically, you know, when I, I made my next appointment and um, and they 
put her in as the primary doctor as opposed to the original neurologist who I'd been seeing. So there was really no discussion about it. And it sort of took me a minute to catch on. And then I was like, oh, this is okay. She seems fine. She's nice enough. She was also, but she was also just recently at a fellowship. And I think that my, you know, somewhat discomfort with the, the nature of how that transition took place, as well as my knowledge that she was not that experienced. And then her, you know, not attending to this, um, you know, not not showing her understanding of how serious this topic was. Wow. Exactly. So did you write her a note so. to say thanks, but I'm uh, moving on? Or is it like, is it awkward in the hallways mm-hmm. now? <laughs> I have not run into her, thankfully. I'm actually quite thankful for that. I think it would be fine. But I mean, and I do think she's a, a great neurologist. Like I don't, I, but it just wasn't working for me at that point. And I think, I, I wanted to find someone who I felt more confident about. So, um, yeah, so I, I um, talked to my provider and um, and specifically requested this neurologist who had come highly recommended. His schedule was very booked, which is also somewhat of a positive sign, I would think. Which is worse, bedside manner, lack of empathy, or being assigned to a new neurologist without notice? Oof. That's a tough one. Uh, I don't know. I guess they all don't sound great. I mean, Becca's story is interesting because there seemed to be sort of a maybe a bit of a lack of understanding or or lack of empathy to where perhaps she had come from in her life and what her personal experiences were. But at the end of the day, you know, she said it's not that she was a bad neurologist. She just wasn't the right fit for me. So maybe the level of empathy that that neurologist was showing might be okay for another patient. It just wasn't right for Becca. Well, what I think is fascinating is how careful so many of us are about not wanting to hurt the feelings of the care provider. Well, meanwhile, she was switched to another care provider without even being asked or consulted or anything, just walks in and there's a new care provider sitting in front of her, (laughs) right? So there's, we're so, you know, so many of us are empathetic to not wanting to hurt feelings or, or bruise egos by saying, no, I'd like to go with someone else. But there doesn't, there doesn't always seem to be that same concern on the other side. Yeah, and I can't imagine that uh, happening in an OBGYN office where they would uh, suddenly switch your doctor from a female to a male. Yeah, that wouldn't surprise me, actually. <laughs> yeah. Right? Oh, really? Yeah. Me either. No. Yeah. I, Isn't that weird? There should be that sensitivity to that, but there doesn't seem to be. I, I find the, the OBGYNs to not their offices to run very similarly to the rest of the industry. (laughs) Yes, as a fellow female, I would agree with you on that, Rebecca. (laughs) And once again, Larry knows nothing about women, and (laughs) I am wrong again. It really just goes to show how this is a common experience. So we have heard from many, many people with Parkinson's about their relationship issues with neurologists and other medical professionals. But for every bad doctor story, you know, there's a patient story too, right? Uh, To get a glimpse behind the curtain, I called up Dr. Rachel Dolan, board certified movement disorder specialist and vice president of medical communications for the Michael J. Fox Foundation. I started by asking about the importance of the doctor-patient relationship. This is an extremely important part of your care. 
So especially in Parkinson's, where you're having a long-term relationship with your doctor, it's really important to have somebody you can talk to openly and honestly, somebody who listens to you. You know, Parkinson's is really all about expressing how things are going on a daily basis, how your medicines are or aren't working, how new symptoms are coming up or symptoms are changing. And, you know, it's not like other diseases where we can take a measurement and adjust your medication based on that. We adjust things based on what you tell us. So that communication and that relationship, which, as I said, is a long-term one, is really critical. I I do want to talk about, or I'd like to hear your perspective on, especially with Parkinson's, uh, the the care partner and the role that they can play in, uh, in the neurologist visit. I think we can be much better at bringing in the care partners. So the care partners are oftentimes sort of the unsung heroes of the, of the care team. And um, we can be better at asking their perspective, asking them what's going on. They have this, um, you know, insider's perspective uh, at, at what's going on outside the office. We get, you know, 15, 30 minutes, maybe an hour every couple months to see what's going on. And, and you know, Larry, people show off and, and do their best in the, in the doctor's office, right? No, so I can't imagine. We don't, <laughs> so we don't get really a good, good look at exactly what's going on. And oftentimes care partners can tell us, you know, Larry's maybe not quite acting like himself. Maybe he's looking like he's a little bit more depressed or he's not sleeping as well or, or those sorts of things. Care partners can really tell us a little bit more about what's going on. So I think having bringing the care partner into the discussion at the time of the visit, even sometimes outside the visit, it's, it's oftentimes helpful if care partners call ahead of time and say, this is what I'm worried about. Can we talk about this? So care partners are really an integral part of the care team and bringing them in um, inside and outside of that doctor's visit can be really helpful for all of us. Well, Rebecca, that was kind of interesting, eh? What we heard the doctor say about care partners and how she thinks that exactly what you were saying earlier is true, that doctors should get better at listening to care partners and what they have to say, because what they have, that information they have and their perspective really is so valuable. I love that she said that. It's something that us as care partners in the care partner community talk about all the time. We're the best. We are the best resource for information and perspective when it comes to the day-to-day happenings in our person with Parkinson's life and how it's affecting our lifestyle and our family. We're the ones who have the kind of big picture perspective on how things are going and also can say, you know, he says that he's not struggling with putting his pants on in the morning, but it's taking him twice as long as it used to. Maybe it doesn't feel long to him. But it is taking longer. Little detail, things like that, where we can observe as an outsider, but still be privy to the minutia of what's happening and how someone's actually doing. I appreciate very much that she and others, obviously, in the industry are starting to recognize the care partners as a key resource in the treatment of people with Parkinson's. 
In my defense, they are making pants differently these days. <laughs> yeah, they're making them tighter, right? They seem to be tighter since the pandemic I don't know, started. The holes are smaller or something. <laughs> I've been talking to a lot of people with Parkinson's about their relationship with their uh, you know neurologist or movement disorder specialist, and a lot of it has to do with uh, you know building trust. Uh, you know, you want to believe what they say. Um, sometimes a, a doctor will ask a question and then like start like they're distracted or something uh, or, or they're um, Type on their computer. Right. Yeah. And you feel like you're not being heard. Uh, and, and that, that breaks trust. How do patients break trust with doctors? That's a good question. I think that um, it's, as you said, it's, it's a, it's a relationship that goes both ways. And so I think there are things that both of us can do to build trust with one another. It's really about hearing each other and listening to each other. So I think that um, some of the best things that patients can do to kind of keep that relationship going are report back. So when we prescribe the medication or we talk about doing something, whether that's exercising or, as I said, starting a new medication or, or um, monitoring a new symptom, report back on that. Or if you don't um, monitor that or, or don't report back on it, tell us why. So was it too difficult to report back on it? Was it too difficult to start that exercise regimen? So keep that relationship going and keep those lines of communication going. And if you're having trouble doing that, tell us why. So it's really about that relationship and really about that trust building. Has it ever come to a point where somebody had to go, um, Rachel, thank you for your treatment, but I'm going to leave you now. I'm firing you. You know, I, I I like to think of it not so much as I was fired, but um, but I did a, a really good job, and and I and they moved on. So um, so I was the one who actually recommended a second opinion with another movement disorder specialist. So I'm a movement disorder specialist, but I was working with this woman, and and we kind of weren't getting to where we we really wanted to be with her treatment. And so I said, hey, why don't we have somebody else take a a second look at you? And after that evaluation, um, she came back and and she said, you know, I I went to see this other movement disorder specialist and and she was really great. And I I think she's just kind of a better fit for me. So back to that, what we were talking about, that chemistry, that relationship. And and, um, although, you know, I, I wouldn't have chosen that, I was really glad that she was going to get good care. So um, so I, I kind of think of finding a good doctor as dating. Sometimes you have to see more than one. And so I think of this as kind of a mature sort of breakup. <laughs> so she, you know, she came back, she told me what happened. And, you know, I was glad that she, she expressed that to me. I didn't, I, I, I didn't wonder what happened to her or, or worry that she wasn't getting good care. And I was really grateful that, that it ended up that she was getting good care from a movement disorder specialist that she trusted. Yeah, that's interesting. You said something there. At least she checked back in with you. Uh, do I, I imagine doctors get ghosted quite a bit where like suddenly like the patient just <laughs> doesn't come back? Yeah, and I can understand that. You know, if you go to another movement disorder specialist and you find you, you get along with them a little bit better and you don't want to go back to the first one and say, hey, you know, I, I found somebody who's, uh, you know, better for me. But, um, you know, I think it's, it's helpful for us to know. And um, even if you maybe tell the office, call and leave a message or that sort of thing, it, it is helpful for us to know that, you know, again, not wonder what happened. Yeah, it's not you. It's me. 
<laughs> All right. So uh, here's your opportunity to give us some advice. Like, let's say I really like my neurologist and I don't want my neurologist not to like me. What are some of the pet peeves that patients do that we should stop doing? Oh, gosh. Um, there's one that's probably pretty universal, and we call it kind of the hand on the doorknob question. So we're, you know, wrapping up the visit. We're saying, have a, have a great day. We'll see you in three months. And we've got our hand on the doorknob to leave. And you say, oh, well, by the way, you know, I've started fainting. And it's like, okay, well, now here goes the rest of my day because we've got to spend a half an hour talking about your new fainting spells because that could be something really big. And we've got to talk about, you know, what's happening are you on new medications? Did you start, you know, and so, so this hand on the doorknob question is, is basically you, you ask something really huge at the end of the visit when we think it's over. I see you have your hand on the door handle. So, uh, (laughs) I'm going to (laughs) just let me go. (laughs) So, so just one last question. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, (laughs) thank you for your time. It was great. And it's it's always fun to chat with you and everybody in our community. Now, and Larry, thank you for asking the doctor my question about what she would like to see more of from patients. So as a result, Will you no longer keep all of your questions until the very end of the appointment, right when she's about to walk out the door? Yeah, you know what I do is I actually write down the uh, the issues that I want to have addressed, and I uh, make sure that um, my doctor is aware of those issues at the beginning. Yeah, that's smart. So, so we get them all in. Um, but yeah, so the, the 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 I love that answer though the 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 door handle question because you you know that that's why I'm in the waiting room at the end of the day waiting another extra half hour yeah. for. <laughs> for my appointment. Exactly. To be fair, from the patient perspective or the care partner perspective, a lot of times doctors are very rushed when they come in and they know they only have a certain amount of time with you. So they, in their mind, have a schedule and an agenda for how we're going to spend the time. We got to get through these tests. We got to do these measurements. I want to talk about this because you talked about it last time. So I want to see if our treatment decisions are making a difference they get kind of through it and then they're like standing up getting ready to go and maybe you're unaware that they haven't asked yet do you have anything else that you want to talk about do you have any questions for me rachel's such a big proponent of 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 answering patient and and caregiver questions that she actually has her own feature on the michaeljfox.org website called ask the md she does blogs and videos and she answers your questions about parkinson's and helps you and your loved ones best navigate life with pd so so if your own neurologist isn't helping you out just just ask rachel (laughs) (laughs) now guys it is that time in the podcast where larry and rebecca you guys check in with each other At the beginning and end of every season, we like to do a check-in. More specifically, how you are doing with accepting, coming to terms with, making peace with, learning to live with your Parkinson's. So, yeah, I've referred to Parkinson's as a frenemy before, several times in the podcast. And uh, on the frenemy scale... um, it's pretty. It's more towards friend than enemy uh, these days, um, but like a distant friend. He like stays too long in your house. Like 
you got to go home. It's like one in the morning. Come on, get out of here. <laughs> <laughs> well, what's shifting for you? What's changing? You know, I'm, I'm doing counseling now, and um, that's helping me to sort of come to terms with some things. And I think for, for me, the biggest shift has been um, around the way I feel in my body. And it's not that I feel better in my body. It's that it doesn't matter how I feel. My my toes are always going to hurt until they don't. Whether I'm active or not active or sleeping or not sleeping or whatever. So if I wake up at four in the morning, you make the most of it. You know, what, whatever that means at the moment. One morning the, within the last couple of weeks, you came in having woken up very early in the morning with these kind of bright eyes and enthusiasm in your eyes. You said, I listened to Brene Brown's most recent podcast this morning and something's starting to make more sense. It was her interview with Sonia Renee Taylor, who wrote the book about radical self-love. I don't have the book in front of me. I'm forgetting the title. Tell me what that podcast opened up for you. It wasn't the first time somebody said this, but it was probably the first time that I heard it. That I'm good enough. At all costs, love yourself. I don't know. It's it's one of those things when you hear it, you feel it. And it's hard to put into words. And, you know, even Brene was like, I knew as soon as I saw your book, I was going to hate it, but I knew I needed to love it. Like, it's, like, <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's just heavy and it's deep and it's digging up stuff. And then that combined with my, my counseling where we're looking at, you know, why I resist exercise. And, but you're able to take it, to take it one bite at a time. Yeah, it's like a which pizza. Is healthy. Will you take it into yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, I sure, should put it into a food analogy. <laughs> Sorry. But you're doing it in a really healthy way, which we have done for a long time actually, where you absorb and process and assimilate one lesson at a time. And even that lesson may take several bites and or and being able to peel away one layer of the onion at a time before you really get to the good to the, the meat of it all. Yeah, I mean, I've got the book, and I opened the book the other day, and then I closed it. Because First step, step number one. <laughs> <laughs> but um, I just, I have to listen to the podcast again. I feel like I need a, a second run at it. I don't feel overwhelmed, I just don't feel like reading. I'd rather play, you know. Um, my really my my fiends game on my phone or lego with henry lego's great we're not going to the movies we're not going to the theater we're not going and sitting in bars and having a drink and laughing with friends so you have to get sometimes a little bit more creative or be more committed to the things that you that you can do to play and things like being outdoors, playing games with your with your kid, building with the Legos with absolutely no intention or expectation in mind. 
Yeah. And what's interesting, no matter how much you play and how much you try to make um, this situation that we're all going through with COVID, um, the best it can be when you're mainly just in your house and you're not going out and doing a lot of things. You know, you may take a hike here and there, but um, I got to believe that we're not the only family where tensions flare up a little bit faster than normal. I'm certain we're not. Today has been a a rough family day for us. I was so worked up. My uh, tremors came back in my legs and my arms full full bore like they like I had no levodopa in me. This is the time when I noticed that the emotions in the family and things being a little ratcheted up affecting your symptoms the most I've ever seen and much more than you normally are. Normally, if you're on your medication, I don't really notice a tremor ever. And the more we're talking about yeah, it, the worse it's, it's getting. Yeah, the worse it's getting, yeah. 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 It just, it's a reminder that it's real. <laughs> so we started this, you know, what's my relationship with with Parkinson's? And it's, you know, it's a, it's ever-present. Um, but it's not, I, I, I'm not angry at Parkinson's. Um, I'm not mad at it. I don't hate it. A major lesson that you're going to get out of this is that radical self-love that Sonia Renee Taylor talks about. And then therefore I'm offered that opportunity to really look at what I have left on in that lesson too. Being in a body is really hard sometimes. And for people who deal with chronic pain and chronic conditions like you and many people listening, it's particularly hard to have a body and to love your body. But if you can get there, my gosh, look at that amazing growth that happens from that. Yeah, I mean, one of the revelations I've had in the last six months is that Parkinson's can be a gift. One of the first gifts you ever gave me was... uh, Grow your own mushrooms, <laughs> and it, it, I opened it, and it was a box of, of manure, <laughs> just <laughs> like this box of dirt, but it smelled like poo because it was. It, it, was, it was very, very clean, probably cow poo. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but stuck inside there was like porcini mushrooms or something. But I couldn't get over the fact that my girlfriend just gave me a box of poop. <laughs> Uh, but in retrospect, I, I realize it's probably the most thoughtful gift uh, anybody's ever given me because she knows I love mushrooms and I like to grow my own stuff. And she was aware that I was growing my own herbs at the time. And Parkinson's is kind of a a, a, a box of poop. box of poop <laughs> but, <laughs> that over the time grows beautiful mushrooms. Right. So it's like, <laughs> it's like this beautiful uh, uh, truffle that uh, we just need to unearth and clean off a little bit. I love you. I love you. This season on When Life Gives You Parkinson's. When you play music, it's, it just takes you to another place. It's, um, it's automatic. It's something that you don't have to think about. So music is part of my life. has been always. What does it do for you? It stimulates my... It makes me happy, basically. It, it's sort of... when I'm, uh, Even if I'm not there, I'm humming a tune or having a tune in my head. 
it's, it's a must must vibrate somehow. We know exactly what's in a in a Cinemet pill because that's carefully controlled and regulated by the government. We have no idea what's in the CBD at the CBD store on the street corner. Well, and there's dopamine agonists that cause hypersexual activity. That's right, absolutely. And so that can be another whole problem in and of itself. Some people had remarkably less tremors. Some people had a a little less tremors, but each person who received a Reiki session from us was grateful and said, thank you, I'm feeling much better. And it wasn't something that like, I immediately said, wow, my faith is um, going to be, you know, that's, it makes life perfect and I expect healing, that sort of thing. No, it was kind of like a process of trusting God that good things could come out of this, even though it's really hard. Lately, um, I start, when I have stiffness, I cannot, I cannot walk, so I have to throw myself to the ground and start like crawling or doing like a snake to try to get one place to another. This is When Life Gives You Parkinson's, a Curious Cast podcast. Our story producer is Dila Velazquez, sound designed by Greg Schott. The presenting partner is Parkinson Canada. Diagnosed with Parkinson's, you're not alone. Parkinson.ca. Oh, and you know, I want to remind people, share the link to the podcast with your friends on email, Facebook, Twitter, or on your blog. Thanks also to our promotional partners, Spotlight YOPD, the only organization in the world with the singular focus of raising awareness of young onset Parkinson's disease at SpotlightYOPD.org. The Michael J. Fox Foundation Parkinson's Podcast, hosted by Larry Gifford. Available on Apple Podcasts and at michaeljfox.org. The World Parkinson Congress 2022 in Barcelona, Spain. Go to wpc2022.org for details on special virtual events that you can participate in right now. And PD Avengers, Woo-hoo! ready to help end Parkinson's? You can join now at pdavengers.com. And thank you for listening. Please take a moment to subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, CastBox, or wherever you listen to podcasts. While you're there, give the show a five-star rating. Five-star rating, Nikki. Nothing less. <laughs> yeah, I heard that five stars. <laughs> and feel free to give us a comment. It really helps spread the word about the about the show. And, of course, you can always engage with us on social media. It's at Parkinson's Pod on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Or you can always email us with your thoughts. Pod at CuriousCast.ca. Keep positive. Keep exercising. And keep listening. We'll talk to you next time. Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance (laughs) recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.